The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Thanks for joining me today. We have a variety of potential investment opportunities on the program and a visit with the silver guru david morgan from a recent trip to the gold and silver summit that i took to san francisco i chatted with james mcdonald the president of kootenay silver trading in the u.s as k-o-o-y-f and on the tsx venture exchange as ktn kootenay has high grades of silver in mexico i caught up with ken berry of northern vertex trading as nhvcf in the u.s and NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange. Their project in northwestern Arizona is slated to go into commercial production next fall with gold and silver assets. I was also up in Vancouver, British Columbia, visiting with Dr. Catherine Hickson with Dajan Resources Corporation, trading as DJIFF in the U.S., and DJI on the TSX Venture Exchange. I'll speak with Dr. Hickson about Dejan's lithium plays in Nevada and Argentina, and we'll cover the uses for lithium as well in an expanding new clean tech economy. Stay with us for my full-on explanation of why Cruise Capital Corporation believes it's positioned to handle the growing demand for cobalt and why now may be the right time to consider investing. Cruise Capital trades as BKTPF in the U.S., and CUZ on the TSX Venture Exchange. Catalaska Uranium came upon what they believe are significant diamond targets. Their partner De Beers may believe so as well. Peter Dassler returns to the program for an explanation. Catalaska trades a CVVUF in the U.S. and CVV on the TSX Venture Exchange. Let's begin this program right now. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer, Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer, as a partner. Peter, welcome back to the program. For the past few weeks, we've been primarily discussing Canalaska's uranium plays, but let's not us overlook something outstanding. While you were exploring for uranium, you came upon diamond targets in the Athabasca, and you managed to structure a joint venture with the world's largest producer of diamonds. 
De Beers. Yes, Alice, it's been rather exciting. We have been looking for uranium in the Athabasca for the last 10 years, and during that time we've seen a number of other things that are of interest to geologists. We've seen some areas with platinum, some areas with gold, but one of the most striking things that we saw came from a new government survey that was done in 2011, and the geophysical team that I have worked with my geologist and said these magnetic images show uh, features that look like kimberlites and kimberlites are the sources of most of the diamonds in the world so that became very interesting and we'll be able to do a 20 million dollar deal with De Beers. That is not an insignificant number. Where's that money going to go? It is a good deal. It started in March this year. De Beers uh, like what we showed them. About 75 large targets generally about half a mile in diameter. These circular features in this big plain of sand look like the magnetic features that you have with the kimberlite pipes where you have a little bit of magnetic material so when the aircraft flies above the ground measuring the magnetic susceptibility you can see these blips. These what we think are the conduits to bring diamonds to the surface from maybe about 150 miles below surface and when we saw the clustering them 75 of them, some clustered here some of it further away and showed them to De Beers, they said these look like kimberlite districts that they see elsewhere in the world and of course there are new diamond mines in Canada so this is of extreme interest to them. Let's talk about the supply and demand issue with diamonds. There hasn't been a great deal of talk about it, at least not on this program. Not a lot of excitement, to my knowledge, in the junior mining space. What's changed recently? Well, diamonds have always had a market, and to be as a, at the ultimate marketer of fine quality diamonds, there's always been a demand for large or colored diamonds. And in various parts of the world, you'll see larger diamonds, various pipes have larger diamonds, and there's always a quest to find them. Somebody wants to buy them. Now, generally, diamond mines are very high value. They're the highest value mines that you'll see in the world. They don't occur everywhere. They're quite rare and they're a source of value. People store value in diamonds and they move value around the world with diamonds, but they also look very pretty. There's a demand. We're out there looking for those larger diamonds, those fancy diamonds, and we think these areas should be explored for any diamonds, but if they're larger and fancy, then we've certainly got something quite amazing at our doorstep. Well, certainly it seems like it's an underexploited story and a significant story for a North American mining company. Well, Alice, we are a uranium company, but if we found one kimberlite pipe with diamonds on it, it would probably eclipse most of the other uranium stuff that we're working on at the moment. They're very rare, but to see this clustering makes us think that they are real, and De Beers moved in very quickly with ground surveys and started a preliminary drill program in September, and we're expecting budgets for their drill program for January, February, March in this winter, and that's when they'll really get an opportunity to test these targets. If we find a diamond mine, it's quite staggering. The, the valuations would certainly pop our company into the top tier. What happens at that point if your diamond targets do, in fact, eclipse uranium and De Beers says, you know what? We want to own this. What does Can Alaska do at that point? We have a, uh, an agreement with uh, De Beers where we could retain a 10% interest in that project. 10% would be financeable, but most likely we would put this in another company to the benefit of our shareholders. We'd most likely form another company to solely look after the uranium assets or solely look after the diamond assets and progress from there. You must remember, however, that we only ever optioned 20% of our land position to De Beers, so we have a large number of 
targets on ground that we own 100%, and eventually over time with the diamonds being found on one area, that will uh, create value in the other areas. The team that would be involved in that would be a separate team to the uranium space, but it would certainly be something that our shareholders would uh, benefit from. You've managed to keep a very tight share structure with all that's been going on. How did you do it? Well, it's been tough since 2008 with the market crash. Uh, All uh, mining companies have seen uh, prices deteriorate, but we saw it coming and we slowed down our operations. The work that we're doing is from surveys that we did prior to 2008, or the surveys where we had some of our other joint venture partners paying for them. Our task is to go find these geological targets or these geophysical targets and present it to other companies that will fund them. And that's really what we've concentrated over the last five years. We haven't been out there drilling the uranium targets because the uranium price has been down. We've been looking for these new types of targets like the diamond targets, and fortuitously, they were right in the area where we were working. But over this winter, we're also expecting to go out and do a little bit of work on a copper project that we generated ourselves in an area where there is a lot of copper mineralization. And again, we'll do the preliminary work and then get the heavy lifting to be carried on by someone who's more in that business. We are a project generator. That's how we create value for our shareholders. We spend a small amount of money, but a whole lot of technology to find targets and then find the people that are most appropriate. So the last five years has been spending time to find the appropriate people. Well, with this new economy that we seem to be on the verge of, copper prices have been somewhat suppressed, not due to any other reason except natural market forces. With new emphasis on infrastructure in the United States, it could be a very significant market for you. Well, I'm a very fundamental type guy. I'm a geologist and uh, I've worked in the business for many years and I've seen the the cycles come and go for commodities. The two commodities that I hang my hat on are uranium because with cheap power that we have lots of manufacturing and lots of jobs and and able to supply need of the population of North America or elsewhere. But to get that energy, to get that to your power to people, you have to have copper wiring, whether it's in your brand new Lexus, whether it's in your brand new Tesla, or whether it's just the wires that run to your house. So copper is always a a fundamental commodity that we need. I've always been in the copper business. Uranium business, for me, adds to that. And the diamonds that we're seeing right now is a plus. It's probably the gravy on the meal for our shareholders. Well, you're the right man for the job, evidently. Peter, again, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, listeners. I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium, trading in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan of the Morgan Report.com. David co-authored the book along with David Smith, Second Chance. I caught up with David last week at the Gold Silver Summit in San Francisco. David, welcome back to the program. It is great to be back with you. Now, a year ago at this particular conference, it was the beginning of, uh, shall we say, silver fever. How would you say the next year is going to pan out? Well, I think we're in a bull market. I think that, uh, you know, last year, gold and silver bottomed in like December 2015. And in early 2016, the market started doing better and better. So we have had a pullback here recently, and uh, some of the bull people... People have been shaken out, but uh, 
uh, the strong hands are still here and they're looking for better times ahead. And I think we're going to see better times in 2017. When you're looking at a public company for an investment opportunity in the silver space, what's the number one thing that means the most? The people. The older I get, the more I understand, you know, how important people are in everyone's life, how interconnected we are. And without the right people, uh, everything else can line up. In fact, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story, uh, Ellis. But back in the early, early days when I was, and I'm still learning the business. I'm not trying, I'm trying to be a lifelong learner. But when I was getting my grounded, my mentor at the time was Dr. Bill Green. And Dr. Bill Green taught geology at the University of Idaho. And he made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, David, if you find the right people, they will continue to work until they find something worthwhile. In other words, the right people work so hard that they'll make find a project and it's not worth it but they'll continue to find another project that is worth it that idea never left me that if you have the right people they'll continue to work until they find something of merit and i really believe that even stronger today than the day he he told me that so if you have a grade and you don't have the right people uh, that's still not that relevant yeah, I mean, Colossus Minerals is one that was a huge mistake for us, and uh, Rick Rule made the same mistake, and many of the stalwarts in the industry. It's the was the highest grade gold mine on the planet, and grade could make up for a lot of errors. I mean, you can have uh, poor management, you can have uh, high labor costs, you can have a lot of things. If you got a high enough grade, it will overcome a lot of sins, but it doesn't overcome them all. And that project had a watering issue that no one was really being, let me say, totally straightforward about. And because of that, it ended up being a disaster. They got way over budget and things just basically went south rapidly. There's a prime example from my personal experience of a very high grade, probably highest grade gold mine on the planet that failed. Any particular companies you want to talk about that you really like? This one that I put, you know, my reputation on. I mean, every time I talk about a company in the public domain, I'm taking a risk. And I know that full well. So there's one company that I followed for two years before I put anything on paper. You know, I'm very conservative. I want things to work out right. I call it the mobile mill, and we've talked about it before on your show, and I was pushing that pretty hard. And it turned out that everything that the company said about the technology is factual. It's true. Unfortunately, it was a rather convoluted share structure. And the people that started it tried to rectify the situation and did a good job financially of moving away from the what we'll call the shell or the initial company and they did it in a straight up legal lawyer approved manner however you cannot dictate justice you can write it in the law but that doesn't mean everyone's going to obey it so the company that was supposed to tender shares to the new code failed to do so and started selling shares into the marketplace not per the agreement and drove the stock price down miserably another example of good people associated with not so good people took a great company from a starting position that was very low and should have gone higher, lower because of their own personal self-interest, again, disobeying a signed contract. That's all been rectified now. The shares have been sold in the market. It's recovered. And I'm still very positive about the company as a speculation. But another one I tried to be so careful about, and it ended up kind of backfiring on me. You've got a new book out. Tell us about that. It's called Second Chance. It's written by David Smith and myself. It looks at the mistakes that we made in the first bull market and several exit strategies for what we think is going to be the largest bull market in precious metals ever. I just finished my uh, lecture here at the Gold and Silver Summit in San Francisco, and the speech was about the final leg of this major bull market. I think we're going to see a massive move up into precious metals over the next three 
three or four years. And because of that, we wanted people to be prepared for when those days do come, how to take some profits off the table and not do a complete ride where it goes all the way up. And when it starts to fall back, they just hold and hold and hold and watch it come all the way back down. Lots of anecdotal stories, lots of methodologies, lots of kind of plans and strategies that you can utilize to protect your profits. And we have one called the Sacrifice Fly, where you can get a bit greedy and try to catch the exact top of the market without very much risk. David, it's always a pleasure to see you and and speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Well, thank you for having me, Ellis. I've been speaking with David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com at the Gold Silver Summit in San Francisco. Listen to the segment again on our website, EllisMartReport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as K-O-O-Y-F and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra silver projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with the world-leading mining partner. Kootenay currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, we join Mr. McDonald on site at the La Cigar Silver Project. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here. You're at the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua State, Mexico, with some exciting news for us. Feel free to share it with us, Jim. Yeah, I am. I'm right on site. Came down, we put news out here on the first 11 drill holes on our RAM structure on the La Cigarra deposit. It's the very first time that structure's ever been drilled. We can trace it for uh, 3,400 meters, 3.4 kilometers, and we've tested only 400 meters of that. What we're showing here is that we've hit good mineralization in 9 out of 11 holes. We've got consistent silver mineralization in multiple zones uh, along that entire 400 meters strike length. So that bodes really well for adding resources there. We 400 meters of strike, we're already building something up. When you look at the big picture and the trend we're on, we're on the extension of a mineral trend that comes right out of the operating Santa Barbara and San Francisco Deloro mines immediately to our south. That trend goes under the valley cover to the south of us, and when it emerges on the other side of the valley, it comes right up into our RAM and Soledad structures and on into our deposit area. So we're working on the same mineral trend, same kind of structure, and they're mining down a 1,000 meter depth there. So this kind of start here, we're wide open on the RAM structure along strike to hit silver mineralization consistently along 400 meters right out of the gate is very promising start and you know gives us a lot of confidence we're going to be adding ounces here and you know we've got potential for some real good high grade ounces ore shoots forming along this trend we are potentially talking about ounces per ton though i'm looking at some of these drill highlights from the ram zone and they're very very strong you know we've got some great grades there to start 
right out of the gate, we're getting up to 200 grams per ton. You're talking in that sort of case, six ounce, seven ounce per ton range when you talk about ounces. Yeah, it's just the beginning. We're coming back. We're still currently drilling. We're moved over to a structure to the east. Uh, in the new year, we're going to come back to the ram structure. We're, and we're going to step out in wide space drill setups and just have a look at that whole trend and then come back and close in on the results we get from that. So the new year is going to be a lot of follow-up work. I think it's going to be very exciting for us. And not only that target, but the additional targets that remain to be drilled in the immediate area of the deposit itself. And then we're going to get onto the deposit in the new year and finish drilling it off, which has not been done yet. Nothing is certain, of course, but the future looks really bright with regard to the La Cigar Silver Project. The future looks um, <laughs> it looks really good. What we're dealing with here is a district-scale project. We're in an established district already. The Perel District, broader scope of the district, there's been some 2 billion ounces of silver discovered or produced. There's two producing mines in the district still, and those are the two mines that sit immediately to our south, south of our project. So we're basically extension of that system. And we've got multiple target areas on the property that haven't even been drilled yet. The deposit itself already has 52.5 million ounces of measured indicated silver and another 11.5 million ounces in the inferred category. It's open in both strike directions. It's open to depth. And then in the immediate surrounding area, there are eight undrilled targets. And we're just starting to have a look at those. And that's what these RAM results are all about. And for a first pass right out of the gate, that's very, very encouraging numbers that we're getting, and we're just scratching the surface here. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We applaud all the good work that you're doing, and I'm sure that your shareholders may be very pleased as well. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation. Trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. You've completed Northern Vertex's Phase 1 pilot production of the Moss Mine Gold-Silver Project in Northern Arizona. Is that not correct? We have, in fact, completed the Phase 1 pilot production. Uh, It was very successful. It produced 4,000 ounces of gold and over 20,000 ounces of silver. And most importantly, what it did was it de-risked the project for the commercial phase, which is upcoming and expected to commence in the fall of 2017, just ahead of us. So we are essentially very close to commercial production. How much do you expect to pull out of the ground during the next few years? 
Well, our feasibility is calling for 42,000 ounces per year. So we'll commence construction according to our schedule. We'll be doing a build-out starting the next couple of weeks. That'll take place over the next six or seven months into June and July. And then we'll start loading the heap leach pad. And we expect to be extracting gold come September, October. And we're looking for a rate of 42,000 ounces per year. And of course, the ramp-up will be a little less than that as we sort of move into full production. We're pretty excited. There's not too many projects in the U.S. that are this close to production. Let's talk about the cost of production. This is an open pit project with outcroppings at surface. Does that mean there is visible gold? This should keep the cost of production essentially below $600 an ounce, right? We've got a cash cost that's in the $415 range, and then our all-in sustaining costs are about $668 per ounce. So that's exceptional. I've actually got the numbers right in front of me, and it's a cash cost of $409 an ounce and all-in sustaining cost of 668 So that's in the lower quartile for producing gold mines in North America. This is a fascinating part of the country, just off of Route 66 in Arizona. I haven't visited Oatman yet, but I expect to in the near future. It's exceptional location for a mining project. To give you an example, we're an hour and a half south of Las Vegas. You can fly into Las Vegas and be on the site within an hour and a half and be back in Las Vegas in the afternoon. But the area of Oatman where the mine's located is six miles outside of the town of Bullhead City or Laughlin. There's two sister cities. Laughlin is on the Nevada side. Bullhead City is on the Arizona side. And then we're also three and a half hours away from Phoenix. So we've got an international airport, which is just six and a half miles away from the site. So it's exceptional. The employees and our staff can live at home and then travel daily to the site. It's a 20 minute drive from their homes. And we won't be carrying a lot of inventory, which is unusual for mining projects. Often mining projects are located in remote districts, which requires you to build a mining camp which can be $10 million plus in expenses, or carry a tremendous amount of inventory. And that can also run you 10 to $15 million in inventory. So this project, because of its location, doesn't have to incur these high expenses. And that's a reason why our capital expenditures to build this mine over the next seven months are estimated to be $33 million. So this is uh, very low for a mining project, and we're pretty excited about that. Essentially, you're taking it to a smelter and to market. It's turning into gold currency right away. We will have a, a Merrill Crow system or plant on site. So what that means is we'll be pouring Doré bars, gold and silver bars, on a weekly basis. And then we'll be sending it off to the smelter. It's pretty a streamlined process. We take the ore, we crush it, we put it on a heap leach pad, extract the solution, run it through the Merrill Crow system, and we'll be pouring the Doré bars, as I mentioned, on a weekly basis, and then shipping them off to be processed further. It really doesn't get much better than that, does it, Ken? No, when you look at a project that's located in the United States, really this is an exceptional opportunity. I mean, we've reviewed the financial numbers and the data from our feasibility study and also the test mining, which has de-risked the project, and our internal rate of return is is about 51%, and that's just unheard of for mining projects. You'd usually have a 15 to 20% return, and you'd be happy, but we're up at around 51%. 
after-tax return, and this is just exceptional. And you're providing jobs for the local community, and Arizona is a right-to-work state, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Well, that's true, LSE. You've pointed out one of the favorable districts is northwest Arizona. When we ran the pilot plant and produced that 4,000 ounces of gold, 20,000 ounces of silver, we employed more than 100 people for that process, and we had a ribbon cutting at the beginning of the opening, and we had 350 individuals from the community, the state, and county level. It included the governor of Arizona, Governor Brewer at the time, that cut the ribbon for the project. So they're very pro-mining and pro-jobs in this area of Arizona. So we're happy to be located here and we've ingrained ourselves with the, the stakeholders of the region. Since it's so easy to get there relatively from anywhere, I expect Moss Mine to be somewhat of a tourist attraction, which I've never said to a CEO of a mining company before. Well, you've brought up a good point. People can fly into Las Vegas from anywhere in the world and be on our site after they've landed within a couple hours. Starting in February of 2017 and just a few months away, they're going to actually have direct flights from Phoenix into Bullhead City. And your listeners are more than welcome to come down and give us a call and get an opportunity to see a real producing mine. But in addition to that, you drive just three, four miles from our site and you can visit the town of Oatman. And the town of Oatman is just a very historic center on Route 66. And the mines in the neighboring area, the Oatman District, which we're included in, have produced over 2.5 million ounces of gold. And the town of Oatman is a tourist attraction in that they have wild burrows from the days that the prospectors and old-time miners were in the region and they were utilizing these burrows or mules and donkeys. And now they run wild in the area and it's quite a tourist attraction. I believe they even shot how the West was won back in the uh, former glory of the region. So it's a good area to come down and visit and we welcome your listeners. What does the share structure of the company look like? Our share structure for a company that's raised over $53 million to develop this project, we're sitting with a, a healthy shares outstanding. Uh, I would consider it the lower end. There's 95 million shares outstanding. Our shareholder base is very strong. Management's got a significant interest as well as high net worth and private banking. And we also have a retail portion included in that as well. But this is a project that's U.S. made, and we're looking forward to attracting more interest from people and your listeners throughout the state. So more than happy, as you mentioned, if people want to put it on their itinerary to come down and visit and see the area of Oatman, we'd like to invite you down. Well, I intend on doing that in the very near future, Ken. And of course, we'll be chatting during the coming weeks and months, informing our audience of all upcoming news and events regarding Northern Vertex's Moss Mine Silver Gold Project in Arizona. Ken, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Alice, thank you very much, and we look forward to updating your listeners as we start to commence the earthworks and the build-out of this project over the months to come. So thank you very much for inviting us on. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin for Cruise Capital Corp. Trading as BKTPF. Consider this, if you will. 
The dynamic for cobalt is very similar to what you've seen in lithium. The price for lithium has gone from $6,000 to a high of close to $25,000 in the last year and a half. That would be the equivalent of gold actually being at $6,000 in the next year. Cruise Capital saw an opportunity in cobalt six months ago, being one of the first companies in Nevada the day that Pure Energy announced its deal with Tesla, Cruz actually announced its own lithium deal. They were one of the first movers there, and four months later, Lithium X came along. When you become a lithium company, you look at the dynamics of why lithium prices are moving the way they have. Primarily, it's been the electric car industry that has been the driver for that exponential gain in lithium. What the management of Cruz did then was look at what were the main drivers within the battery space within those cars. You had graphite, which has already had more or less a bigger pop with many companies looking for graphite and not many finding it. Nickel is a much bigger industry and the company couldn't really get in at the early stages. And then cobalt. Looking at the cobalt dynamic, really there's only two or three companies in North America that are cobalt specific companies of which they've spent a great deal of money on those projects and for the most part are still not at a point where they can really be economic. The cobalt numbers need to be higher to make those companies and the dynamics work correctly. When they were doing this, Cobalt was $10. They need about $20 to be in a good comfort level to go into production. Cruz was looking at the dynamics of cobalt itself, and there's a niche there. There were few within the sector. What Cruz did was hire a geological firm as they only wanted to find North American cobalt projects. They came back a month later with numerous cobalt showings. They garnered a database of close to 200 different cobalt projects, of which they graded from 1 to 4. They came back with a small amount of number 1 categories, and instead of getting one project, they captured eight projects for the company right out of the gate. By having eight projects, all with the same highest-grade cobalt numbers in North America, it puts Cruz at a distinct advantage to all other cobalt companies that we expect will follow them, as they did in lithium in Nevada in the future. The cobalt dynamic is what really appealed to Cruz Capital, because looking at the car space, for example, you're going to see in North America a growing demand. What you're seeing in China is an exploding demand. In Europe, in countries such as the Netherlands, and Sweden. A lot of countries want to ban cars on the road by 2025, 2030, 2040, or 2045 in Germany, for instance. What the company believes is going to happen in China is that you have a pollution issue there. You have massive infrastructure already in place by having 80 cities the size of Chicago already built up, and you have a government that when they decide to mandate that there will be no more gas cars, they don't roll it out like they do in the rest of the world. If they decide tomorrow that there are no more gas cars, they will be no more gas cars tomorrow. Right now, there's about 16,000 plug-in posts in China. By 2020, they want to have 4.9 million posts. When you look at that kind of exponential growth at what they want to do and what the dynamics of the battery industry could entail and the fact that there's been no new production of cobalt, the fact that 60% of your production of cobalt is in one African country, the DRC, which is mineral-rich but politically really, really negative. You also have many outside factors such as what they consider blood cobalt. You've seen videos of seven-year-old kids coming out of holes in the ground in the Congo to pull cobalt out, of which the majority of that is being sold to the Chinese who really don't care too much about what they're doing as far as buying it. What you've seen is Samsung, Apple, Hitachi, LG producing every major battery for your phone, your laptops, your iPads, and your cars. These companies are having to explain where their cobalt is coming from. If you're tracing it back to the DRC, there could be some issues. If you, for example, have any kind of ethical mutual fund 
ones that own Apple, and they trace any of their cobalt in their batteries back to children pulling it out of holes, that's going to be a negative. When you look at all the backstory as to why cobalt is going to go, we really think that you're going to see an exponential move. You can see it recently now with the price of cobalt, which is basically making year highs almost every day now. We expect that that's really going to move from here. Most, when they become fully aware of the cobalt story, are in agreement that cobalt is probably going to have a huge year in 2017. Just last week, Cruise Capital announced that it has significantly increased its land holdings on the past cobalt-producing Hector Cobalt Project in Ontario, Canada. The company has added 137 claims to its holdings, in fact, now comprising approximately 5,500 contiguous acres. The Hector Cobalt Prospect is one of four cobalt prospects in Ontario currently held by Cruise to go along with three in British Columbia and one in Idaho. The property was mined for cobalt and is a past producer of cobalt. This new expansion also covers multiple other cobalt showings based on Government of Ontario files. Cruise Capital Corp. looks forward to commencing operations on this prospect to evaluate and follow up on the historic data gathered. Cruise is focused on high-grade cobalt assets in North America, and they look forward to getting operations underway on multiple cobalt prospects. With eight current projects in the company, the company believes that Cruise is in a unique position at the forefront of what they feel will be an impending global cobalt boom. Cruise Capital believes that they are really at the forefront in the sector. When you look at everything, you know, when you put it all out there on the line, Cruise Capital strongly believes zinc and cobalt are going to be the two biggest upticks in 2017. And they believe the dynamics for cobalt are setting themselves up for an exponential move. Consider looking at Cruise Capital Corporation as a potential investment opportunity. Cruise Capital trades in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Cruise Capital Corp. is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Katherine Hickson, a director of Dejin Resources Corporation, trading in the U.S. as DJIFF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as DJI. Dejin Resources Corporation is an energy metals company with brine-based lithium exploration projects strategically located in both South and North America. In August of this year, Dejin's wholly owned Argentinian subsidiary, Dejin Resources South America, signed a binding memorandum of of understanding with Lithium S Corporation, whereby Lithium S will be granted an option to earn a 51% interest in Dejan's lithium properties in Argentina. Dr. Hickson is a globally recognized geoscience expert with more than 30 years experience in science management and integration. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. What is so interesting about lithium right now that our audience should really pay special attention to? Well, lithium is one of those amazing elements that over the years we found more and more uses for. In particular, it is used for energy storage batteries. And that's what you're hearing all the hype about these days is more and more battery usage for electric vehicles, for your laptops. But I think what is really important about lithium batteries are things like power walls to help us with our renewable energy. What does that mean, power walls? Nothing I've heard before. Well, power walls, there has been a big push for 
homegrown, like literally homegrown energy. And what we're talking about is rooftop solar, small wind plants, these kinds of things. But of course, with wind and solar, the only time that you get electricity is when the wind is blowing or the, the sun is shining. What you need is a way to store that for times when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And those are now power walls. Essentially, they're built into your home, lithium batteries, ways to store that energy so that you use it when it's dark out or the wind isn't blowing, these kinds of things. So when you're in the southwest, states like Arizona, New Mexico, southern California, you get a lot of sunlight, maybe 200 days out of the year, California 300, you're not always getting sunlight. You've got a way to use this energy and store it so you can use it for maybe a week or two when you don't have that energy available. Correct. So what we're not looking at, or at least for the home use, probably not a week of storage, but enough storage to get you through nighttime and a couple couple of cloudy days. But the important thing is these lithium batteries, these power walls will take a lot of lithium. And that is one of the things that we think is going to drive the market. An electric vehicle takes a few kilos of lithium. A power wall, because we're talking about running a house would take tens of kilos. And I should probably talk in pounds, right? I've heard about these lithium storage. They're basically tractor trailers that can be parked in a neighborhood and store a lot of energy. Can you do that with lithium? Correct. So that's an interesting concept. But the tractor trailer will be for a power company that's using renewable power. So they have, you know, big solar farm or wind farm, and they need days to weeks of capacity. And yes, at the moment, lithium is probably the best alternative. Now, if we're talking about storing gigawatts of power, then there are other ways to do that. But for the homeowner, for, say, a small community, lithium batteries are going to be in a very important part about the mix of renewables versus standard grid-based power that you're going to get from your power company. And this is something I didn't know about before this interview, and potentially that's going to be a, a new industry that will cover the entire country with all the emphasis on solar energy and wind power these days. Yes, indeed, you have to store it somewhere. And it really is because the renewables, like wind and solar are just they're not 24 7 so you need to smooth out that spectrum as we move into more and more of our power being supplied by renewable energy and that is from a homeowner right up to a utility there needs to be a way to store power and lithium batteries have proven to be very safe way of storing large amounts of power we briefly spoke about the automotive industry, and that's always been the driver for, let's say, publicly traded lithium companies. When they tell their story, they wrap it around Tesla, let's say, which is active in Nevada, as are you. You're in the same state and probably not too far away. And we would hate for anybody's business to revolve around one particular car maker. But as a matter of fact, everybody's getting involved in it at some point, correct? That's absolutely correct. All of the major car makers are now working on, either they already have existing either hybrids or fully electrical, but everybody is getting out there. And I think what is even more important is not just the, the passenger vehicle. What we're seeing now is buses and trucks. So many manufacturers are now moving into electrical vehicles. Bus, if, you know, you know their size. They have significant capacity. 
They need significant capacity so that we have big batteries. So this is another thing that is driving the lithium market. Yes, what's glitzy, what people are seeing in terms of ads are the major car makers creating new kinds of vehicles. They're, you know, sexy, people like them. But in fact, the lithium usage is going to be very significant for buses and trucks. And again, that's another aspect that's driving the market, not just the passenger vehicle. How is your company in particular, Dejan, how are you positioned to handle this new business coming from all directions, evidently? And what is special about your company compared to others? I think what Dejan, what we have, and what other companies like us, is we have to fill that capacity gap. Right now, there is a projected shortage. So we've talked about electric vehicles, we've talked about power walls, more and more lithium batteries, increasing capacity of those batteries. And with that increasing capacity, obviously we need more lithium. Lithium is not a rare metal, and I think people need to understand that. It's actually very common in our environment, but what is uncommon is places where it can be extracted in large quantities that will meet this growing demand and at really economic levels. And you're in two places in the world with regard to that. Correct. We have projects in Nevada as well as in Argentina. And Argentina is part of what's called the Lithium Triangle. This includes Bolivia and Chile. And that is the world's number one producer, those countries now and into the future. Argentina is very interesting, though. Chile produces much more lithium than Argentina does, but in fact the capacity of Argentina to produce lithium is very high. And we're now partnered with a company called Lithium S, and they want to put Argentina at the forefront of lithium producers in the world. When you say partner, what are they offering Dejin that makes this partnership really special? Well, what they're offering Dejin is a number of things. Now, when you're doing lithium exploration, It is a high-risk business, but there are particular areas of the world that we know are important for lithium, one being the lithium triangle. So this is northern Argentina, Chile, and southern Bolivia, and also Nevada, which has been termed the lithium hub. And what's important about these places is they have a particular geology as well as climate. The geology is creation of basins. These basins are what we call closed basins. Water runs into them doesn't run out, simply evaporates away, and the lithium that is locked up in the rocks around and in the basin are liberated by the water. That water then evaporates away, gets a concentrated brine. So these have tended in the past to be very cost-effective. They can be pumped, so you can think like oil, pumping oil, pumped up to the surface and evaporated, and creating lithium, either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, depending on what the battery manufacturer or the other manufacturers would like. But these particular areas, because of the brines, because of the low cost, if you think about Nevada as well, Nevada has very good transportation. It's a great place to do business. Tesla has a gigafactory, and in that gigafactory, he's planning to produce batteries as well as cars. So there is a ready market for lithium close at hand with good infrastructure to transport it from the plant to the gigafactory. And the state of Nevada is very bold on what you're doing, correct? 
state of Nevada is very pro-mining, very pro-development. It's not just mining. They are seeking companies that would like to invest in Nevada. And, of course, lithium has proved to be a real boon for them. Let's talk about the share structure of this particular company, if you will. Why is now potentially a good time to take a look at Nation? I think now is a very important time. We are a company that got into the lithium business before many of our you know, call them competitors, other companies. So we feel that we have good projects. One of the things, though, is we are an early stage exploration company. We've done surface sampling. We've done geophysics. We have looked at the depth of our basins in Nevada, for example. That one of the basins that we're working in, called Teal's Marsh, is very deep. In fact, it's probably the deepest basin in Nevada. It's over 6,000 feet deep. And that's an amazing depth of sediment to be captured in this basin. So we've done the surface sampling. We get brines. We have lithium in brine as well as in the the sediment. So these are the particles that are on the surface. And it's deep. It's big. It has a very large surface area in terms of the catchment area. So it has all the hallmarks of being potentially a great deposit. But it has not been drilled yet. Once we drilled and we have good results, then who knows? What would you say to those folks who may say to you, how do we know that lithium isn't potentially a bubble? Yes, we've heard this, that lithium is a bubble. I, in fact, thought at the beginning a couple of years ago that all of this hype was really, it was hype. But as I dug deeper and deeper into it and looked at, so the things for me that have been a surprise... I came out of the renewable energy sector, actually geothermal, and there are many ties between the geothermal and lithium in terms of exploration. Being in that renewable energy space for a while, and I would never have predicted the increase in just things like rooftop solar, how it has expanded. Automobile, and we've already talked about trucks and buses, and then so the power walls, big buses and trucks. If you had asked me two years ago how much lithium would be needed, you know, I'd say, well, yes, obviously an increasing amount. But what we're seeing is an exponential increase in the amount of lithium that will be needed to create these new batteries, to power this new generation. And Goldman Sachs coined this term. They said, you know, lithium is the the new gasoline. That's not correct. Electricity is the gasoline. It is the electricity that is running our automobiles, running our buses, whatever, but is lithium that makes it a gasoline. And I think it really, as we see this escalating use of electricity in our world, as we move into renewables, cleaner, greener technologies, lithium plays a huge role in that. Catherine, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Catherine Hickson, a director with Dejin Resources Corporation, trading in the U.S. as DJIFF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as DJI. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation at the Gold and Silver Summit in San Francisco with Jay Martin, president of Cambridge House International, Canada's premier conference company. 
Cambridge House is presenting the CanTech Investment Conference on January 18, 2017 in Toronto and the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver on January 22nd and 23rd of 2017. Jay, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the CanTech Conference in January. Why is this a must-do for anybody that's interested in anything involving technology and resources? The CanTech Conference is in Toronto and it's January 18th. This is our fourth year producing this show and it's become the largest technology conference in Canada. Our focus really at this conference is to showcase what's happening next in Canadian tech. So any investors who are looking to access that market, find out who is going to be the next Shopify, essentially that's our goal is we look for the up and coming companies that are about to break it, haven't quite hit the street yet, so they're still under the radar and we showcase these guys. What kind of response have you received in the past from this sort of event? It's been great. Year one, this was the first conference in Canada that really brought the entire Canadian tech sector together and year two we saw a triple in attendance growth. Year three, healthy growth again. So moving into our fourth year, we feel a big obligation to really wow the crowd. And so we've got a bunch of new features at this conference. We've got our speaker hall with some fantastic CEOs and amazing companies presenting both from the TSX and the CSE. However, this year we're bringing a bunch of interactive companies to surround the show and what we're calling the tech track. And these are companies that have wearable or interactive robotics companies, AI, AR, anything that the audience can really step into and experience tech products. So the focus is investment and it always will be, but for this show, we're actually bringing a much more interactive feature to the show, which I think will, will be tons of fun. And what would you say to U.S. investors who live in, let's say, New York and Florida, Los Angeles, the Midwestern areas like Chicago and Detroit and what have you? Why should they come up to Toronto? Because Canadian tech in the U.S. is very much overlooked, and they're missing out on some phenomenal returns over the last three years. And the tech sector is still heating up. We're still seeing companies produce fantastic returns. And if you're investing in the Bay Area or New York, well, specifically New York, where we're a hop, skip, and a jump away. This is the entire Canadian sector. So it's our job to bring the, the whole ecosystem together. So all the players, all the companies, the investors, the analysts, the media, they're all at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre for January 18th, all under one roof. So whatever it is you're looking to learn or do in Canadian tech, this is definitely the spot to do it. Let's talk about the Cambridge House show in January in Vancouver. It's one of the best conferences in the world for the sector. This year is going to be very exciting, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. That's really nice of you to say that. It's a ton of fun. It's definitely our flagship conference. Conference. And this event has been around for about 23 years now. This year, January 22nd and 23rd. And this will be the second year in Vancouver that we've partnered with Marin Katusa. It's not so new anymore, but it still feels new to us because of all the energy Marin brings to the game. He's a ton of fun to work with, incredibly hardworking. And we've always been very patient and particular with all of the partners we'll work with in this business, and it's paid off. And Marin has been absolutely no exception. Since our agreement with Marin now, you'll see a bit of a shift in focus in our speaker halls. We've seen a lot more money managers on stage, a lot more CEOs, and the intention here is to show people what the most successful investors in the business are putting their money into today. That's what investors want to know. In my business, I speak with quite a few individuals that are involved with these uh, public companies, and from what I hear, we can expect to see many more companies than we've seen during the downturn. The sector is kind of exciting now, isn't it? It is. It is. And you will see an increase of about probably 30 to 40 percent more companies there than last year. And why you should pay attention to that is because these are the first companies to move 
move in this turnaround. So they'll be setting the high water mark in the next 12 months. The show has grown, but not every company has come back yet. Not every company is seeing growth yet or raising cash yet, but the companies at our conference in January are. So they'll be leading this turnaround and definitely they're worth paying attention to. And these are really the leaders in the turnaround in the sector. I wouldn't even call them survivors. I would call them just smart companies who did all the right things at the right time. That's right. They're strategic and smart with their cash and an incredible challenge for anybody in this business to survive the last five years. And there's no way to overstate that. There's been some very dark and uncertain times, but some companies were able to move projects forward, were able to raise cash because of their alliances, their partnerships, and the way they conduct business. And these are the companies that we're focusing on today. So we can safely say, you and I, from our pulse of the business and these companies, that it'd be safe to say that the sector itself is going to do very well during the next couple of years based on company attendance at your conference. I think we all pay attention to the indicators that we have most access to. And in the trade show business, that is issuer participation and investor participation at the event. If that's my gauge, you know, I definitely see more confident optimism than we've seen in the last four or five years. What are some of your attendees telling you? They're excited. I think they're very inspired by the refreshed content on our stage, seeing more of the money manager side, keynoting our conferences, and that's that's been new for us. So uh, we've got some great feedback. You'll see very few solo keynotes at our conferences these days. We've tried to design all of our agendas to be one-on-one conversations or debates because you really get a deeper look into the topic, right? When people are hitting each other with hard questions and putting each other on the spot, it becomes more fun, it's more dynamic, it's more interactive, and we've seen a very positive response from the attendees. Jay Martin, thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Jay Martin, president of Cambridge House International. Once again, the Cantech Investment Conference is going to be held in Toronto on January 18th, 2017, and the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference will follow on January 22nd and 23rd. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.